Anyway, let's get to the word of the Lord. Carrie uh, Newhoff is a Canadian thought leader, a blogger, podcaster, best-selling author, pastor. And he wrote this article last month. And the article is entitled, 10 Reasons Even Committed Church Attenders Are Attending Church Less Often. And he specifically writes that the article is not about people who have left the church, that's a different topic, but about people who love the Lord, who love the church, why they don't come to church very often anymore. Reason number one was this, greater affluence. There are simply more affluent people than there were decades ago. People with money have options. Number two, higher focus on kids' activities. Many sports happen on weekends. Parents are choosing sports over church. It's as simple as that. Number three, more travel. More and more families travel for the weekend. Number five, online options. There have never been more opportunities for people to access church without being there. But then reasons seven and eight, the the last two I'm going to read, they're they're the ones that concern me the most. Number seven is self-directed spirituality. People are looking less to churches to help them grow spiritually. In an age where people have access to everything online, more and more people are self-directing their spirituality. And number eight, failure to see a direct benefit. People always make time for the things they value most. If declining attendance is an issue, chances are it's because they don't see a direct benefit or value in being there week after week. Now, you've probably guessed my goal for this morning. My prayer is that together we will see the value of what we're doing right now, of worshiping together corporately, that we'll see that in this place, like this, you get what you can't get anywhere else. And what you get here is of greater value than you can find anywhere else, even on your own, in your self-directed spirituality. I pray that as we come to the word of the Lord this morning, that you and I together will be devoted to worshiping the Lord together. So toward that end, let's turn once again this week to Acts chapter 2. If you'll take your Bible and turn there. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there should be one on the pew in front of you. Uh, If not, the passage is also printed uh, in your bulletin or your worship guide. So when you found Acts chapter 2, let's stand together so that we might hear read together the word of the living God. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42, this is the word of the Lord. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to any, to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily, day by day, those who were being saved. Let's pray together. Father, bless now your word. 
We pray uh, once again that you would be faithful to your promise. Your word has been read. It's been heard. That's a place of blessing. So bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Well, here we are. It's week number three in our series uh, on the means of grace. And just to remind you, the means of grace are the Word of God, the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism, and the prayers of God's people. These are the means by which, through faith and through the power of the Holy Spirit, God pours out His infinite riches on us, the infinitely ill-deserving. But that's what love-inspired grace does. It, it gives freely to those who, who don't deserve it. I do want to be clear on this, our third week together on this topic, that the riches of the grace of an omnipotent God, an omnipresent God, are not restricted, they're not limited, they're not isolated only to these means of grace. As if God's grace is found only here and nowhere else. No. The grace of God is in other places as well. What I am saying in this series is that it is certain that God will meet us with His grace in these places. My best friend shocked me a little bit. You remember my best friend from last week? Samuel Rutherford, the man who's been dead for 460 years. But I was reading Samuel for the, the comfort, the counsel, the wisdom. But I always find when I read him, then unexpectedly, he wrote about a place where the Lord does tryst with his people. <laughs> I don't know what the word tryst meant specifically in his day or what the connotation of tryst was, but I know what it means in our day. A tryst is a rendezvous, right? A rendezvous between lovers, clandestine. So I was a little bit shocked and uncomfortable when I read that word. But then the, the vivid, vivid image that it brought to my mind, it became a blessing. Because in truth, the Lord does love us. In truth, the Lord has said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And God demonstrated that love by sending his only son and and Jesus, God the Son, demonstrated that love in coming, in living, in loving among us, in dying for us, and even right now in this moment in praying for us. It's little wonder then that people are inspired to write songs like, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. Because our relationship with the Lord is real, and because it's vital and because it's life-giving, it may be shocking, but I don't think it's wrong to say that the means of grace are the trysting place between the Lord, between those He loves, and between those He loves back. It's probably even good. It's probably even right to use the word tryst. If it moves the reality of the love that Christ has for us from being just a factual proposition to a glowing emotion. 
And if it reminds us that the Lord longs to meet with us, to do tryst with us through the means of grace when we are in fellowship together. And there's our word for this morning. Fellowship. Fellowship. Look in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Now we talked about devotion last week. Devotion means maximal and not minimal commitment. Devotion means ultimate buy-in. And so these early believers were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to being together because they were bound together by their shared faith and love for Christ. And that's what fellowship is for us. It's a shared relationship with others who have a shared relationship with Christ. Fellowship was a unique connection that only they shared. And and so they were addicted to being together in worship. Corporate worship. It was their trysting place with the Lord that they loved and the Lord who loved them. And because the Lord met them when they worshiped around the Word, the Lord's Supper, as they baptized people who came to faith, and as they prayed together because the Lord met them there, they never doubted the benefit of corporate worship. Because of the value that it brought to their lives, they never considered abandoning the fellowship, the corporate worship around the means of grace for an isolated, self-guided, me and Jesus have our own thing kind of spirituality. Worshiping together energizes them, transforms them, changes the way they are in the world when they are not worshiping. Look in verse 45. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need because they worship together. So if you're looking for a direct benefit for attending corporate worship, here it is. Jesus meets you in corporate worship. Jesus changes you in corporate worship. Jesus changes the world through you because you're devoted to corporate worship. I wish I had time to interview each of you. Just ask you what your ideas are about fellowship and about corporate worship. How, we, how you would define it. How you would design it. What you might expect of it when you come to worship. But I don't have time for that. So I'm going to spend the rest of our time this morning and Lord willing next week uh, just putting some truths before you. Truths about corporate worship. Just two for this morning. And the first truth is this. Corporate worship is grand central station for becoming a disciple. Truth number one is that corporate worship is grand central station for becoming a disciple. Now I pray that after 13 weeks looking together at the Great Commission, I pray that you long to be a disciple. I pray that you go want to go into the world and make disciples. Well, listen, worship is the primary place where discipleship happens, where disciples are made. Would you look at the front of your bulletin? 
Take out the front of your bulletin and, and look on the cover. This is our worship guide for corporate worship. Now, right on the front of the bulletin, you read under the church name, Becoming Community in Christ. Do you see that? Now, here's how that's supposed to work. It's supposed to work like this. Before you even enter into the sanctuary, while you're on the portico, as you're handed a bulletin, you are supposed to be reminded that you are getting ready to enter a time and a space of becoming. That's what happens here. We haven't arrived yet, right? But you and I are in process of becoming, becoming community, becoming a fellowship of believers, such as the one in which we read in Acts chapter 2. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, a letter which, by the way, was read during corporate worship of the church in Corinth. Paul writes, and we all, see, there's the corporate nature of it, we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Together, in fellowship, together, in corporate worship, we see the glory of the Lord and we are becoming. We are becoming disciples from one degree of glory to the next, more and more like Christ. So if you're looking for a benefit to corporate worship, if you're looking for, for value for coming and worshiping together, having fellowship together, this is it. Through the means of grace experienced together, we become more and more like Christ, the Lord himself. It doesn't get any better than that. And it happens here in a way that it cannot happen for you on your own. And so that puts fellowship, corporate worship, right at the epicenter of discipleship. You want to become a disciple of Christ? Be devoted to corporate worship. Truth number two. Corporate worship is the place where we are acted upon more than a place where we act. I want to repeat that because it's a statement that's at odds with church culture or most of it for the past 40 years. Corporate worship is the place where we are acted upon more than a place where we act. And here's why I say that it's at odds with the church culture for at least the past 40 years. When Kathy and I moved to Charleston to plant this church, over 20 years ago, we attended a couple of church planter conferences. They were also called church planter boot camps. And during one of those boot camps, one of the strategies that was recommended to us as a way to plant a church is that we should take a survey. We should ask people what they wanted in church. We should ask people what worship would need to look like in order for them to be interested in attending. We were supposed to ask people what the church would have to do and what the church would have to be to entice them to be a member. So do you hear that? Ask people. Ask people what they want. And so do you see the orientation when we ask people 
what worship should look like. That's like, that's like asking an aerospace engineer to ask me to design a rocket. Now, I could do that. It would have to include a rocking chair. Thank you, children, for my Father's Day rocking chair. It would have to include space for my commentaries, and it would have to be made entirely of glass so that my view of the stars would never be obstructed. So I could design a rocket, but guess what? I know nothing about how a rocket works. I don't even really know what they're supposed to accomplish. So good luck achieving your purpose of a rocket that I would design. Why in the world would we ask unbelievers what the worship of the triune God should look like unless our view of worship is skewed? Unless it is true that we really believe that worship is about us, what we like, what we want, what we need, what makes us comfortable. And listen, I don't say this to ridicule. These people that suggested this strategy, they love the Lord. They want to see people come to faith in Christ. But there are also people who might have forgotten that worship is not man-centered. Worship is Christ-centered. God tells us how to worship. And we've been seeing in the last few weeks, he calls those ways the ancient path. We don't need to conduct a survey to figure out how to do it or how to make it effective. Worship is not first and foremost about us and what we need. I know that the desire to meet people's felt needs comes from a good place, right? We want to help people in need. We want to meet their needs. I know some people come to worship desperate to have their felt needs met in this place. But here's the reality. God already knows all of our needs. Trust me in this. God has seen the entire spectrum of human emotions and human needs and human pain and human suffering. Your felt needs and my felt needs are not unique. And interesting and ironically enough, you realize that the more you fellowship together with others and the less you opt for self-guided spirituality that's going to leave you isolated and lonely and feeling that you and your problems are unique in this world and that you are more broken than everyone else. No. So I'll say it again. Corporate worship is the place where we are acted upon more than a place where we act. By God's design, Our real needs, your real needs, my real needs, whether or not we even feel them, are met through the means of grace in fellowship together in corporate worship. Because worship is not only a place where God is present, worship is a place where God acts on us. Now look at your bulletin again, if you will. And look on page 2. And right under our purpose statement that's written in bold at the top, you see God calls us to worship. God calls us to worship. John and I might lead the call. You might respond in the call. But listen, it's God who issues the call. God is the primary actor in worship. Just as he called creation into being. 
just as he called you into being and knit you together in your mother's womb, just as he called you out of the kingdom of darkness and into his kingdom of light. God is the one who works. God calls us to worship because God has something he wants to do in us and for us. Of course, we're not passive in worship. We sing, we praise, we pray, we respond to the acts of the Lord. But listen to this. It's only because the Lord has already acted in us. We read it earlier this morning. In the words of assurance, look on page four. We read that God anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So you see, it's God who acts. He anoints. He sets his seal. He deposits his spirit. He guarantees. It's only because God has already acted in us by giving us his spirit that we are even able to respond in worship. We respond because God deposited. Worship is the place of God's action and our response. And think about the intensity of this moment. You know, look around the room. Look around you. All these people here this morning, people who are indwelled by the Spirit of God. Think of the concentration of the Spirit of God in this place. Probably, probably at no other time in your week will you be surrounded by so many people who are indwelled by God's Spirit. That's intense. And that's your benefit and your value in corporate worship. You get here what you cannot get anywhere else. You need worship. I need worship. I wonder if it's why David wrote in Psalm 122, I was glad when they said unto me, let us, let us go into the house of the Lord. David gladly went into the house of the Lord together with God's people. Maybe because God, David knew that worship was God's trysting place with his people, the place where they met God, where the place where God acted upon them. I wonder if that's why he was so glad and had such eager anticipation for time of worship with the Lord. So here are some of my prayers for us. I pray that all of us together will see fellowship. Corporate worship is the place where, by the means of grace, God pours out His grace, shines down His grace on us. I pray that we'll be filled with gladness, an eager expectation at the thought of being in this place together. I pray that we will be devoted to the fellowship, to corporate worship, because we are eager for becoming as God acts in our lives. That's the perfect place to end. But I'm not. I want to say one more thing. Just so you know that I know that after church on Sunday mornings, lots of people have roast pastor. <laughs> you know it's true, so go ahead and laugh. And it never ceases to amaze me 
What I am sure I said is quite different from what people are sure that they heard me say. For instance, last week as someone was leaving the door, they said to me, okay, okay, I'm going to make a donation online. I'm like, wait a minute. You got a sermon on devotion to mean I'm asking you for your money? I didn't even mention your money. Nevertheless, we know how it goes. So I I just want to say this. Please don't hear me say this or interpret this sermon this way. Well, that sure was Craig's passive, aggressive attempt to get the numbers up, to get more backsides in the pews, guilting us into coming to church week after week. That is not what I'm saying. Did you hear me say that? That is not what I am saying. If you heard me saying that, you misunderstood everything I said. Because let me tell you this, I do not care about numbers. Can I say that again? I do not care about numbers. I will preach to this place is overflowing and can't hold everybody. Or I'll preach to there's so few here we have to close the door. It doesn't matter to me. That is up to the Lord. Here's what I care about. And here's what I'm going to use my time that God continues to loan me and the gifts that he loans to me. I'm going to spend that time making disciples. And so what I am saying this morning is simply this, that fellowship, corporate worship with other believers around the means of grace, that's the place where God meets you, where God meets me. It is the place where God acts on us together. It's the place where God uniquely molds us more and more into the image of Christ, i.e. the place where he turns us in to devoted disciples. And these realities of worship are of inestimable benefit and value to the believer in Christ. And for these reasons... You should be committed to the fellowship, to the corporate worship of the one and only true and living God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are here this morning by your design. We are here this morning by your call. You've not left worship to our own imaginations. You've told us how it is we should do it. You've let us know that worship is to be done around your word, around your sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism, and around the prayers of your people. Lord, in these ways, through these means, you meet us. We thank you that you're a loving God who does tryst with his people. Father, our view of worship needs to change. I pray now that you would change it. If we need to look at this time differently, help us see it differently. Not as a place where we come, where we're the center, what we want, what we need, but where you are the center, where we come expectantly waiting for you to work in us and through us. Make us devoted to one another and to you in worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.